problem with the computers, they go to sleep on you. getting up there. Okay, you got that one up there. Get my notes going. I tell you, as I was coming into the parking lot, I was not uh, the earliest I've ever been in, but as I came in, I looked in the parking lot. There was one car here, and I think one on the other side, and I was thinking, oh, Brandy announced this morning, and uh, <laughs> the word got out. Uh, now I'm sure. Okay, here we go. It's waking up. And, uh, I'm going to do this and not, not to get it going there. But anyway, as we uh, get into this uh, question for you, have you ever noticed that uh, when you uh, get out and you make a, a search using one of the search tools out there like Google, that uh, you can get a pretty good idea real quick just how popular the subject is that you're looking in on by the number of hits that you see down at the bottom. Uh, for example, uh, over Thanksgiving, I was at my mom's house, and uh, we had some issues with the garage door opener, and I went to get uh, parts for it. And I figured rather than getting up on a ladder 16 feet in the air and get the part number off it that way, why don't we just look it up online? Well, I think there were five or six hits total that showed up for it, none of them were what I needed. But in setting up for this message, uh, I did a search and uh, did a quick, uh, simple, uh, just a simple Google search on the words motivational speaker. And uh, I found 26 pages of entries or suggestions that were out there. And what that tells me is the world is full of life coaches and self-help uh, instructor types because we realize that we have something wrong in our life and uh, it's not what we look for uh, what, and we want some help with what we're go going through. As I looked through that list of the suggested motivational speakers and stuff, I didn't really dig into any of them because I wasn't that interested, but one of the speakers listed, listed in the lineup in Google was a gentleman by the name of Bear Grylls. Anybody know the name? Yeah, he, he's that survival nut that has a reality TV show, motivational speaker. Uh, so, okay, that's a, another one on there. This might be for the older crowd. Somebody by the name of Mr. T. Remember the A-team? I pity the fool. Yeah, m motivational speaker. Another one. This one went totally over my head, but I just, I just saw the name, and it's like, what? There was a uh, picture there of a tattooed woman by the name of Biff Naked. I kid you not. I'm not making this up. The point is, I can't imagine getting life advice from any of these people. I mean, motivation, yeah, that's good. Where's brother? Uh, uh, oh, he's hiding out front. But uh, for those that have been in the military, you go in, you get some real motivational speakers out there, whether you call them DIs, TIs, MITs, or MTIs. Your drill instructor out there is going to motivate you uh, one way or another. But we've got a problem here. The problem is that all these motivational speakers 
are just men and women like you and I. They're suffering from the same faults that we have. Some of them may have learned better from their mistakes than we have, but they've all gone through the same stuff. So we'll uh, take a look at some motivation out there tonight. But as we get started, go ahead and turn to the 33rd Psalm with me. And as you're turning there, I'm going to mention a, a historic figure that predates motivational speakers. But uh, let me bring up my other page here. Here's a quote from him, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Thomas Edison. You may have heard this quote yourself, and the quote simply says, genius is 1% 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Well, you may be surprised, maybe not, to find out that this famous quote is not exactly what it was to start with. It's changed a little bit over the time. It's evolved. Back in June, or excuse me, in April of 1898, the, lady, the edition of the Ladies' Home Journal had an article which profiled uh, Thomas Edison and included two quotes re- as remembered by close friends at the time. The two quotes they had listed, the first one was, genius is not inspired, inspiration is perspiration. That's part of it. The second indicated that at another time, Edison had defined the word genius by saying it is 2% genius and 98% hard work. The whole point of these various variations of the quotes by him was that we need to act on inspiration or the genius that we have because if we don't act on it, we're not going to succeed. You could say without action, even our best idea is a failure. But when we keep on trying, we can sometimes turn failure into victory. In Edison's case, history records that in coming up with the filament for his light bulb, he tried over 6,000 different materials before he finally came up with one that was suitable. Uh, While we can take this as an encouragement, or as we saw the term motivation for us to persevere in life, This is not an inspired thing. None of these motivational speakers, Edison, none of these guys are inspired. So what is? If we want to look for something inspired, if you go over, excuse me, if you go over into the uh, Busy Bees classroom, you'll find this on the wall. Uh, And if it's not really readable out there, you'll have to visit for yourself. But uh, basically, it's hanging on the wall, and it's a quote from scriptures. It's out of Psalm 139, Verse 14, the full verse reads, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And in the Bible, we see that this uh, passage or this uh, psalm is attributed to David as the uh, author. Another one, this ought to be a little bit more familiar. It's right there on the front of your uh, bulletin all the time. And... uh, It simply reads, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This is Psalm 34.3. And notice here, the the Bible does say that this is uh, attributed to David. And if we notice here that David is calling us to magnify and exalt the name of the Lord together. He's trying to motivate us to get out there and uh, make this connection. 
If we were to go back and look at the two verses leading up to this, we would see that uh, David has already indicated that in his own life he would personally do just that. Uh, saying in uh, Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. We see then that this is both encouraging and inspired. It's motivating and it's from God. But it goes on to call us to action in magnifying and exalting God. When things aren't going our way, that can be a little bit hard to do. And uh, David said he does that at all times. If we look back, we're probably all familiar with a lot of the passages about David's life. There were some troubled times in there. But he says we need to magnify the Lord all the time. And as we uh, start to wrap up this strange year we call 2020, we probably need a little bit of a reminder to just that. We need to be magnifying God at all times. So uh, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would be with me tonight. Give me your words. Help me to... Uh, get the message out. Help us to set our hearts in the right place and our, our minds in the right place that we can magnify and exalt your name, that we can bring praise to your name, Lord, in all that goes on. We recognize that you are there with us in the worst of times, even as you are in the best of times. I pray, Lord, that uh, each one here tonight would be uh, uh, blessed as we draw a little closer to you and Lord, we think also of those that are going through COVID, such as Brother Jeff and uh, uh, Pastor and his family. Lord, uh, we've got some things out there that uh, may be motivating us this year or causing discouragement in our lives, but we know that you are in control and that you are on the throne of heaven and will be forever. And Lord, we uh, give this all to you and uh, glorify for you and uh, what your son have done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So. Um, as the slides, uh, as shown on the slides, uh, I chose to. Uh, so on, on the slides here, it says, "Rejoice in the Lord." A walk through Psalm 33. As I went through this, I gave it this uh, subtitle of "A Walk," and that kind of gave me the picture of going down a country road or uh, taking a walk through the woods. I don't know about you, but I find peace and serenity in doing that. Just being able to get away from all the hustle and bustle of uh, what's going on out there in the city, whether it be the traffic, the people. Uh, growing up, uh, going to air shows drove me nuts. Uh, I don't like being around crowds like that. Uh, but uh, anyway, you get out there on uh, some old dirt country road in the middle of nowhere, no traffic anywhere to be found. You can see the, uh, the rabbits running around. You hear the birds singing. Maybe you see some deer go by all that sort of stuff, and it's just a peaceful thing. And it gives you that opportunity to become more in tune with God and this wonderful creation that he's put out there. And uh, it allows me the time to ponder the great things in life and, and, and not all that day-to-day -day stuff that just gets in the way. Our primary text tonight is from uh, Psalm 33. In fact, it'll be uh, the book of Psalm 33. But uh, in the first three verses, we're again called to praise the Lord. We have a theme here between the verses, that uh, we, these inspired verses we've looked at, and we are to praise the Lord. Uh, verse 1 starts out, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. 
praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him in a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. Unlike these other two ver- uh, passages from uh, Psalm that we looked at earlier where the Bible specifically accredited David as being the human author, God did not bother to record who it was uh, who he used as a human author uh, for this particular psalm. But if you look at the words and, and the things that are going on, uh, certainly David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, would uh, agree with the message that's there, and uh, it goes right along with the command to bring our praise to, and thanks to God in all types of music and song, which is ex- one of the many things that David was known for. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Uh, Songs and hymns and making music to God, it's not just Old Testament, it's New Testament. Reference there would be uh, Ephesians 5.19, where the Bible encourages us to do just that. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Catching a theme here, we should be praising God in all of this as we go through. These first three verses of our uh, chapter speak of glorifying God in all forms of music. In them, there's three different Hebrew words that are translated as either rejoice or praise in these verses. Uh, The first of these words that we see translated is translated as rejoice there in verse 1. It speaks of singing out in praise or shouting for joy. You want to put a picture to it? David's not here. We could have done that, but uh, I went simple. Think of a home football game. You're out there, and your team scores the winning touchdown or scores that uh, play that puts them in the lead. There is a shout. It's a shout of joy that's going to ring out through that stadium. When he says rejoice, that's what we're talking about. The fans are going to be happy and crying out for joy, just as we should respond as we see God working all around us. The next word that's uh, the next Hebrew word that's translated this way is uh, put in English as being praise. It's there in verse one, but it also speaks of giving adoration or thanksgiving, especially in the form of song. So. Ephesians says we ought to have a song in our hearts. Well, this is saying the same thing. We ought to have that song in our hearts. Uh, This morning we sang some great examples uh, when we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Joy to the World. Both of these songs speak of singing God's praises. And at this time of year, that's singing God's praises for the wonderful gift of Christ, who is our only hope for salvation. The next appearance uh, of the word praise is there in verse 2, and in this time it's a verb. And this verb means to cast, to shoot, to throw. And it speaks of giving thanks unto God, lauding and praising Him. It also speaks of confessing our sins. In the King James, the word that's uh, translated as praise here shows up 53 times as praise. Makes sense? But it also shows up another 39 times as either thanks or give thanks. 
and a further 18 times as confess or make confession. You know, we don't always associate confession with praise, but when you start looking at this very picturesque language that the Hebrew uh, people had, we start realizing that we can praise God in so many different ways, whether it be song and music, singing. We talk about the offering. Confession is a way of uh, praising God. We don't... uh, We don't always associate confession with praise, but admitting our faults, weaknesses, and needs to God and affirming that He is right is ultimately a form of praise in and of itself. Uh, In verse 2, we see that praise can be accomplished using a number of different uh, musical instruments. In the verse that specifically mentions the harp and the psaltery, and then a ten-stringed instrument, not sure exactly what that instrument is, but... There's a number of other verses in the Bible that come in and mention these instruments we can use to praise God with. And uh, some of the ones that are mentioned are the trumpet, the timbrel, basically a tambourine type thing, uh, the organ, and that probably refers to flutes and uh, pipes and that sort of woodwind instrument, stuff like that. Others are cymbals, and then there's a number of other instruments. All of these things can be used to praise God. I will caution that we need to make sure that our praise is aimed at and intended for God. Uh, just making music is not necessarily praising God. It's when we're when we have the right audience uh, of that uh, music, and it needs to be uh, pleasing to God. While the instrument can carry, uh, can vary widely, while the way it's played can make a huge difference in just what the message is. And in a previous message, I've talked about Brother Kenny Baldwin and uh, a demonstration that he did years ago for our youth group on the piano. You probably heard that one, but let's bring it a little closer to home. Here in church, Brother Tom plays the violin, sitting up here on the front row, and uh, he takes that. But the violin, while it's associated with soothing-type music, you know, classical music, stuff like that, it can be played very differently. If you take that same violin and you play it in another style, it gets a whole new name. And here in Oklahoma, everybody knows what a fiddle is. Well, it's a violin. It's the same instrument, but it's just played in a different style. And uh, to give you just an idea of how much different it can be, uh, there's a song out there by uh, Charlie Daniels' band called The Devil Went Down to Georgia. And in that song... He has two fiddle players that are in competition. One is little Johnny, who's trying to get a golden fiddle, and the other is the devil himself. The devil wants Johnny's soul. But as they go in there and they start playing their music, of course, this is just a made-up song, but in playing the music, the singer uh, points out that when the devil draws the bow across the strings... It says that the instrument lets out an evil hiss. And if you've ever heard the song, it's, yeah, it's it's an evil hiss that comes out of that. We don't want an evil hiss coming out of this thing here in church. We don't, anything that's going to be labeled as an evil hiss, that just doesn't speak of praise to God. So the way we use the instruments is 
important, the way that we offer this praise up. So yes, offering praise and thanks to God in, in song and through various instruments, but I would just caution, caution us in the way we're doing that because undoubtedly if we have our mood set by the tone of the music around us, I mean, be honest, when you hear music, it will set the mood for you. And if it sets the mood for us, undoubtedly it does the same thing for God. Are we sending the right message? Uh, the, the key point of this whole uh, thing is the act of praising itself. Uh, it's that praising, the, the act, the physical doing that matters, not so much as the instrument or the method used. As Edison pointed out in his quote, 98% of the equation is the perspiration. It's the effort you put into it. You can have the greatest thought in the world. You can have the greatest inspiration in the world. But if you never do anything with it, nobody's ever going to know. You can have the greatest thoughts toward God. But if you never act on it, how does he know? True, he knows our, he knows our hearts. But uh, we need to act on it. You could say that failure to give praise is just a plain failure on our part. Uh, but what I want to focus on tonight, uh, these are the, the, the background parts. What I want to focus on tonight is the background of what the psalmist gives as to why uh, or what we should be praising God for. If you look down at verse 4, it says, uh, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. To start with, we should rejoice in the fact that we have God's word recorded and preserved. We can have it right here in our hands at any time we want. God did this because he wants us to know not just about him, but he wants us to know God. He wants us to know his motivations, his inner thoughts, the things that drive him, the things that please him. I mean, think about it. How can you, how can you please somebody if you don't know what they like in the first place? Hard question at Christmas time. What am I going to get for them? What do they need? What do they want? Well, God gives us that here in his word. He did this because he wants us to know him. Uh, he wants us to know him just like we would know any uh, family member. In his words, he has recorded details about his character, his motivations in doing the things that he's done uh, throughout history. And as we read through and study his word or his story, simply the Bible, we can draw closer to him with each revelation that we find in those passages. Uh, verse 4 goes on to remind us that his word is right. The word used uh, and explained as right here is one which has the sense not only of being correct, but it goes on to indicate that it is just, it's righteous, it's upright, it's proper. These are all good things. That's God's word. The word also indicates that it's something that you know, we might say somebody is being a straight shooter. God's a straight shooter. When he says something to us, that's exactly what he means. We know where he stands. In other words, he records the whole truth, both good and bad, holds back nothing. Unlike ourselves who sometimes are prone to sugarcoat things, well, 
We do that to make it more palatable. At least that's what we say in our heads. Yet if we compare our words and actions to those of God, we would have to admit that when we sugarcoat things, that in reality we're doing it for selfish motives because it's easier on us. And in fact, we are lying to whoever it is we're sugarcoating it for. God's not going to do that to us. Um, when we realize that God is not sugarcoating things, but actually being brutally honest when he tells us what's going on in our lives or where we need to stand, then we have to understand that in doing that, he has our best interest at heart. Uh, because we can know exactly where we stand. We can compare our life to his righteous standard. We then have the opportunity to correct our faults and to restore our relationship that uh, Randy mentioned this morning. If we found out uh, that we had a friend in our life who uh, is going along and, and we're doing stuff and they're saying, everything's okay, everything's okay, there's no problems. And we're asking them stuff, yeah, you're doing great. If we find out later on that the whole time they've just been sugarcoating it for us, they've been lying to us to make us feel better, What's that going to make us feel like on the inside? Once we find out that they've been lying to us, we're going to be a little disappointed at best because it's only after we have that truth that says, no, everything's not okay. You've got some problems. You're going to have to work on this area. It's only after that's readily apparent to us that we have the ability to begin making the corrections we're going to need to make. It's only afterwards that we have that ability to fix the relationship problems that have built up over time with that person that could not be honest with us. So when we get in God's word, he is brutally honest. He's not going to hold, hold the punches. He's going to tell it like it is. And uh, so we know where we stand. With God, he lets us know from the start. And the verse, uh, the verse here says that he does this in truth. Uh, Years ago, Matthew Henry had this to say about this particular verse. He, he says, His promises are all wise and good and involubly sure, and there is no iniquity in His threatenings, but even those are designed for our good by t deterring us from evil. God's Word is right, and therefore uh, all our deviations from it are wrong, and we are then in the right when we agree with it. As I went through there, did you catch it, the part where he said that God's threatenings are right? His threatenings are designed for our good because they deter us from evil. We have a motivation in what's going on there. God says, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. That's a motivation when we realize, I don't want to be there. I don't want to burn in hell forever. That's some motivation. But uh, God doesn't want the bad stuff for us. He wants the worst. So we can sum this up by saying, okay, actually, that's the Matthew Henry quote. I left that out. But Okay, we can sum this up by saying, give God praise and sing his glory because he has our best interest at heart. He's always got our best interest at heart. Christ went to the cross with our best interest at heart. Next, down in verse 5, it says, He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. 
It's full of that goodness. The psalmist then goes on to detail some of the specific examples of this goodness that uh, uh, God has put out there. Verse 6 tells us, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. We are here reminded of the wonders of the creation, the whole world around us, all the physical stuff that's out there, and just how it is that they came to be. In doing so, as God reveals this to us, we have a glimpse of the omnipotence, that is the unending or endless power that God possesses in and of himself, and a picture of the love that went into the creation process. First note that it uh, the Bible here says that it was the spoken word of God and that by that spoken word all energy and matter came into being. You know, there are those out there who would deny the word of God and for that matter they would deny that God even exists. They want us to believe that all of a sudden nothing created everything from nothing and just as suddenly it all went away. I mean, it, it's not going on now. We're not seeing new uh, planets pop up in the sky or suns or anything like that. But all of that just, it was there and now it's gone. Well, I'll tell you what. Believing that takes a lot more faith than believing in an all-powerful and glorious God that is still sitting on his throne. God, who is a spirit, the Bible says, which preexisted all of this physical stuff recorded that he spoke the word, he spoke the world into being. The word translated as heavens here, it speaks of the visible sky and all that is in it. In other words, the whole universe. All of that was put into action by the spoken word of God. He also mentions here that the host was created and that was also done by the spoken word. This reminds us that God did not only create man and the animals and the earth and the sun, moon, stars, but he also created spirit beings. This host speaks of all angelic beings, those that are still in heaven and those that rebelled and followed after Lucifer in the fall. So we could say we can, praise, uh, we can give praise to God and rejoice knowing that he has more power than even the most powerful uh, devil out there. Think about it. God spoke them into existence. He could get rid of them just as easily. Dad always used to, well, I, I, I did it myself. Kids going along and tell them, you keep doing that. You, know, you keep messing up. I can take you out and make another one just like you. But uh, get out there. Yeah, God, God brought us into this world. God can take us out. God brought the devils into the world. They weren't devils at the time, but he can take them out. Uh, in fact, uh, God spoke into existence, uh, spoke them into existence, and He has the power to destroy. Which is why James two nineteen tells us the devils also believe and tremble; they know His power. We are then reminded that after creating this formless, empty ball uh, that we call Earth, which according to Genesis uh, chapter one verses two, six, seven, and nine was covered completely with water. I mean, at the start. 
there was no dry land. It was all water. He gathered these waters together and he made the dry land. Say, and uh, when he did this, as the verse uh, points out here, he laid aside some of those waters in storehouses. So storehouses. We use storehouses today. We use them to put things away for later use. It's usually the junk that we've been buying year after year. That's why there's so many storehouses everywhere. But uh, the God had a purpose for it. He wasn't going to just put it in the storage bin and forget about it. Uh, but so that's exactly what God did. When he created the earth, he knew that there would be a time that he would again need these waters to be used to destroy the water or the world in the flood. And in seeing this or being reminded of this, we have a reminder of his omniscience. That is the fact that he knows all past, present, and future. He is all-knowing. We get to see another attribute of God here. Uh, only the part of these waters laid up were later released in the form of 40 days of rain. You know where we're going here, right? The flood, 40 days, rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, those that deny God, they might come out there and try to get a little math problem on you and say, uh, well, if God did that, I can look back at the historic rainfall rates of, of uh, history and say that 40 days of torrential, torrential rain nonstop, that's not going to be enough to cover the mountains. Well, let's help them out and do a little math. So Everest is 29,029 feet tall. If we convert that to inches, that's 348,000 inches or 348,420 inches tall. To get that many inches of rain in 960 hours, which is what you have in 40 days, it would take a continuous 363 inches of, of rain per hour. We get 10 inches of rain an hour out here. We're ready to start calling up the boats. 363 inches an hour. Yeah, that's pretty torrential rain. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, I'll help them out some more. In God's account in Genesis, Genesis, he tells us that the waters were 30 feet deep over the top of the mountains. So it's more like 390 inches of rain an hour for 40 days and 40 nights that you need. Does that prove their point? No. They're ignoring the stuff here in this verse. When they're doing this calculation, they ignore the rest of the storehouses, these storehouses of the depth. Genesis 7:11 records that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So the windows of heaven being opened may very well be the rain. It may be more than just the rain. But in addition to that, we have the fountains of the great deep being broken up. These fountains are the same storehouses that we see that are being spoken of here in our verse. And it's apparently vast underground supplies of water, which are later released through seismic and perhaps volcanic activity, if you want a picture of it, think of Old Faithful on a giant scale all over everywhere. Water just shooting out of the ground. So, actually, as we, as we go on with that, man can't even begin to imagine the amount of uh, power that God has out there. I mean, we can see Old Faithful, but to equal almost 400 inches of rain an hour, it's going to take more than that. Well, while we can't imagine how powerful God is, we just talked about 
the, you know, maybe coming up like volcanoes and uh, Old Faithful, they're both in uh, Yellowstone. So another uh, interesting piece out of science there. In the not-too-distant past, man figured out that there's these things called calderas in Yellowstone. The largest of them, Yellowstone caldera, measures approximately 30 miles by 45 miles. And what this caldera is, is the mouth of a volcano. So when you see that picture of the volcano and the little hole in the top, that's the caldera. 30 miles by 45 miles. That's about twice the size of Oklahoma City, the, the Oklahoma City incorporated area, not the downtown part. And if you're familiar with that, you know it comes down here past Moore on both sides and goes all over everywhere. That's a big volcano. For years, science had no clue that volcanoes could be anywhere near that size. Now that they know they're there, they realize there's three of them in Yellowstone Park alone. If God can do that with volcanoes, what could he do with all these storehouses of water that are out there? So, at any rate, we can praise God and rejoice knowing of God's wisdom and preparation for our future. He was in control at Noah's time, and he's still in control today. The psalmist goes on and finishes this thought, reminding us that such power and knowledge should evoke a sense of awe from us. The word fear in the verse means primarily to stand in awe of or to show reverence or honor toward and to show respect to. And to a lesser degree, it means a fear of. The point is that God is an awesome God and we don't need to be taking lightly what he has done or to question his motives for allowing us to go through the types of things we do. 2020 is not the best of years but it's not our place to question God. Uh, instead, we should simply thank him and praise him for the opportunities we have. So this thought becomes abundantly clear in the next few verses, starting there in verse 10. It says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart are to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, and he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looketh upon the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioned their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. If you were, if you were to make a trip to the United Nations uh, headquarters building, out there on uh, one of the lawns, you'll find a statue. And it's a statue of a man that's beating his sword into a plowshare. This particular statue is a, uh, a nod to Isaiah two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, which says, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And uh, that passage is uh, repeated in Micah 4.3 where almost exactly the same words are uh, being used. But the reason I bring this up is in his uh, 
through the Bible series, J. Vernon McGee uh, notes that uh, they've got the wrong verse. They've got the wrong point for the statue there. And uh, his point is that rather than the Isaiah uh, scripture there, they should be having this verse 11 from our scripture here in Psalm 33. Uh, he notes that there is no beating of swords at the UN. Rather, they're just beating on each other. Uh, he also notes that the predecessors to the UN, the League of Nations, and before that, the Hague Conference on Peace, peace both of those have come to naught. Gee, that's the same terminology we got going on here. He then goes on and asserts that likewise the UN will come to naught because frankly they have no God or they've left God out of it altogether. If a nation is going to be uh, blessed by God, uh, I lost my spot there, but uh, see, it makes it none of the count. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, the UN itself is not a nation, but they've left God out of the equation, and that's the biggest problem with what's going on uh, in that out there. Now, once we recognize that God sits on the throne, uh, that is, that throne in heaven, and that His word, or His counsel, as it says here, will never fade from truth, we are better equipped to honor Him with the praise of our lips. Notice how verse 11 reports that the thoughts of God's heart are to all generations. He has a, he wants that personal relationship with it. He's thinking about us all the time as we go through that. Uh, we, we must not be fooled into thinking that God hates us or wants something bad for us when things don't go the way that we desire. Yeah, we're going to have some problems in our life. Uh, but it doesn't mean God's not on our side at that point. Uh, this verse tells us that he wants what is best for us. For that matter, he wants what's best for all of mankind, which is why he sent his only begotten son to die for the sins of men. Uh, and uh, as we look at this in verse 13, it says, he beholds, that is, he considers all the sons of men. And the word that's been rendered as men here is the word Adam. It's the same word that's used when we hear the name Adam. We're all the sons of Adam. So we're all covered by that. But just in case we don't think that, uh, in verse 14 he repeats it and he says that it's all the inhabitants of the earth. Well, if it's all the inhabitants of the earth, clearly that includes us today. So verse 15 the psalmist reports that God made all our hearts alike and that he discerns, that is, he considers or he perceives. He's looking at our hearts. He's trying to determine what's going on in there. What's your motivation? Why are you doing this? Where are you really at in life? And uh, that's going on. So he's considering our hearts. But... Uh, in commenting on this verse, uh, Charles Spurgeon notes that when he fashioned our hearts alike, it speaks of the fact that whether we're a king or a beggar, we've got the same type of heart. It's, it, it's put up the same way. We all have the same opportunity to glorify God no matter what our lot is in life. Uh, he also notes that our hearts are not all the same at, in the, uh, not all equal or the same 
in that we can clearly see that as we look around, different people have different motivations in their life. They're, they've got dispensa different dispensations of what drives their life out there. And he puts it this way. He says, all men equally owe the possession of life to the Creator and have therefore no reason to boast themselves. And then he asks this question, what reason has the vessel to glorify itself in the presence of the potter? We can't be questioning God's motives or wondering why He's allowing us to go through something. Instead, we should praise Him, give Him glory, and rejoice in the fact that He's got our best interest at heart, and uh, He wants that. And sometimes we're going to need a little correction to get to the best place. So... One way to say that is we can all rejoice and praise God for the very life that He has given us and the breath we still have. We must recognize that we don't continue in life by our own power or through our own strength. That's, we do that because God allows us to continue. When our time has come, it's come. And that may, that's made clear here in verse 16 where it says, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. And then the uh, psalmist wraps it up neatly this way, starting in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him upon them that hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive uh, in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in Thee. We all can and should uh, praise and magnify the Lord, rejoicing in all that He's done for us uh, and all that He will be doing for us. But mostly we have to place our trust in Christ uh, and mostly we who have placed our trust in Christ can be inspired and encouraged through the Word of God to go on no matter what it is that's going on in our lives because of the hope of His mercy as it says here. Delivering our very soul from the eternal separation from God. And I'll leave you with these uh, final thoughts. The first one, we can rejoice in God's mercy for he deserveth, or for we deserveth death for the sins that we've committed, but Christ paid our debt. Next one, we can rejoice in God's grace for we do not deserve the riches that God has laid up in heaven for us at Christ's expense. We didn't do any of it. Christ paid it all. In these verses we've looked at tonight, we're called to praise God, to magnify and exalt the Lord, to bless His name. Edison had pointed out that the inspiration was just a small percentage. The perspiration, the act itself, was what made everything different. Are we acting on this inspiration that we have, God's inspired word, or are we just plain failing because we're not acting? 